6. A boat and a boy 1952 One morning, Pa, shaved fresh and dressed in a wrinkled button-down shirt, came into the kitchen and said he was leaving on the trailways bus for Asheville to discuss some issues with the Army. He figured he had more disability to him and was off to see about it and wouldn't be back for three or four days. He'd never told Kia his business, where he was going, or when he was coming back, so, standing there in her two short bib overalls, she stared up at him, mute. I believe you deaf and dumb as all get out, he said, the porch door slapping behind him. Kia watched him gimp along the path, left leg swinging to the side, then forward. Her fingers nodded. Maybe they were all going to leave her, one by one down this lane. When he reached the road and unexpectedly looked back, she threw her hand up and waved hard. A shot to keep him tethered. Pa lifted an arm in a quick, dismissive salutation. But it was something. It was more than Ma had done. From there, she wandered to the lagoon, where early light caught the glimmer of hundreds of dragonfly wings. Oaks and thick brush encircled the water, darkening it cave-like, and she stopped as she eyed Pa's boat drifting there on the line. If she took it into the marsh and he found out, he'd take his belt to her or the paddle he kept by the porch door, the welcome bat, Jody had called it. Perhaps a yearning to reach out yonder pulled her toward the boat, a bent-up, flat-bottomed metal skiff pie used for fishing. She'd been out in it all her life, usually with Jody. Sometimes he'd let her steer. She even knew the way through some of the intricate channels and estuaries that wandered through a patchwork of water and land, land and water, finally to the sea. Because even though the ocean was just beyond the trees surrounding the shack, the only way to get there by boat was to go in the opposite direction, inland, and wind through miles of the maze of waterways that eventually hooked back to the sea. But, being only seven and a girl, she'd never taken the boat out by herself. It floated there, tied by a single cotton line to a log. Gray grunge, frayed fishing tackle, and half-crushed beer cans covered the boat floor. Stepping in, she said out loud, gotta check the gas like Jody said, so Pa won't figure I took it. She poked a broken reed into the rusted tank. Nuff for a short ride, I reckon. Like any good robber, she looked around, then flicked the cotton line free of the log and pulled forward with a lone paddle. The silent cloud of dragonflies parted before her. Not able to resist, she pulled the starter rope and jerked back when the motor caught the first time, sputtering and burping white smoke. Grabbing the tiller, she turned the throttle too far, and the boat turned sharply, the engine screaming. She released the throttle, threw her hands up and the bodies to a drift, purring. When in trouble, just let go. Go back to idle. Accelerating now more gently, she steered around the old fallen cypress, putt, putt, putt beyond the piled sticks of the beaver lodge. Then, holding her breath, she steered toward the lagoon entrance, almost hidden by brambles. Ducking beneath the low-hanging limbs of giant trees, she churned slowly through thicket for more than a hundred yards, as easy turtles slid from water logs. A floating mat of duckweed colored the water as green as the leafy ceiling, creating an emerald tunnel. Finally, the trees parted, and she glided into a place of wide sky and reaching grasses, and the sounds of cawing birds. The view a chick gets, she reckoned, when it finally breaks its shell. Kia tooled along, a tiny speck of a girl in a boat, turning this way and that as endless estuaries branched and braided before her. Keep left at all the turns going out, Jody had said. She barely touched the throttle, easing the boat through the current keeping the noise low. As she broke around a stand of reeds, a white-tailed doe with last spring's fawn stood lapping water. Their heads jerked up, slinging droplets through the air. Kia didn't stop or they would bolt, a lesson she'd learned from watching wild turkeys, if you act like a predator, they act like prey. Just ignore them, keep going slow. She drifted by, and the deer stood as still as a pine until Kia disappeared beyond the salt grass.
She entered a place with dark lagoons in a throat of oaks and remembered a channel on the far side that flowed to an enormous estuary. Several times she came upon dead ends, had to backtrack to take another turn. Keeping all these landmarks straight in her mind so she could get back. Finally the estuary lay ahead, water stretching so far it captured the whole sky and all the clouds within it. The tide was going out, she knew by water lines along the creek shores. When it receded enough, any time from now, some channels would shallow up and she'd run aground, get stranded. She'd have to head back before then. As she rounded a stand of tall grass, suddenly the ocean's face, gray, stern, and pulsing, frowned at her. Waves slammed one another, awash in their own white saliva, breaking apart on the shore with loud booms, energy searching for a beachhead. Then they flattened into quiet tongues of foam, waiting for the next surge. The surf taunted her, daring her to breach the waves and enter the sea, but without Jody, her courage failed. Time to turn around anyway. Thunderheads grew in the western sky, forming huge gray mushrooms pressing at the seams. There'd been no other people, not even distant boats, so it was a surprise when she entered the large estuary again, and there, close against the marsh grass, was a boy fishing from another battered rig. Her course would take her only twenty feet from him. By now, she looked every bit the swamp child, hair blown into tangles, dusty cheeks streaked with wind tears. Neither low gas nor storm threat gave her the same edgy feeling as seeing another person, especially a boy. Ma had told her older sisters to watch out for them, if you look tempting, men turn into predators. Squishing her lips tight, she thought, what am I gonna do? I gotta go right by him. From the corner of her eye, she saw he was thin, his golden curls stuffed under a red baseball cap. Much older than she, eleven, maybe twelve. Her face was grim as she approached, but he smiled at her, warm and open, and touched the brim of his hat like a gentleman greeting a fine lady in a gown and bonnet. She nodded slightly, then looked ahead, increasing the throttle and passing him by. All she could think of now was getting back to familiar footing, but somewhere she must have turned wrong, for when she reached the second string of lagoons, she couldn't find the channel that led home. Round and round, near oak knees and myrtle thickets, she searched. A slow panic eased in. Now, the grass banks, sandbars, and bends all looked the same. She cut the engine and stood smack dab in the middle of the boat, balancing with feet spread wide, trying to see over the reeds, but couldn't. She sat. Lost. Low on gas. Storm coming. Stealing Pa's words, she cussed her brother for leaving. Damn ya, Jody. Shit fire and fall in. You just shit fire and fall in it. She whimpered once as the boat drifted in soft current. Clouds, gaining ground against the sun, moved weighted but silent overhead, pushing the sky and dragging shadows across the clear water. Could be a gale any minute. Worse, though, if she wandered too long, Pa would know she took the boat. She eased ahead. Maybe she could find that boy. Another few minutes of creek brought a bend in the large estuary ahead, and on the other side, the boy in his boat. Egrets took flight, a line of white flags against the mounting gray clouds. She anchored him hard with her eyes. Afraid to go near him, afraid not to. Finally, she turned across the estuary. He looked up when she neared. Hey, he said. Hey. She looked beyond his shoulder into the reeds. Which way you headed, anyhow? He asked. Not out. I hope. That storm's coming. No, she said, looking down at the water. You okay? Her throat tightened against a sob. She nodded but couldn't speak. You lost? She bobbed her head again. Wasn't going to cry like a girl. Well, then. I get lost all the time, he said, and smiled. Hey, I know you. You're Jody Clark's sister. I used Toby. He's gone. Well, 
you're still his, but he let it drop. How do you know me? She threw a quick, direct look at his eyes. Oh, I've been fishing with Jody some. I saw you a couple of times. You were just a little kid. You're Kia, right? Someone knew her name. She was taken aback. Felt anchored to something, released from something else. Yeah. You know my place? From here? Reckon I do. It's about time anyhow. He nodded at the clouds. Follow me. He pulled his line, put tackle in the box, and started his outboard. As he headed across the estuary, he waved, and she followed. Cruising slowly, he went directly to the right channel, looked back to make sure she'd made the turn, and kept going. He did that at every bend to the Oak Lagoons. As he turned into the dark waterway toward home, she could see where she'd gone wrong, and would never make the mistake again. He guided her, even after she waved that she knew her way, across her lagoon, up to the shore where the shack squatted in the woods. She motored up to the old waterlogged pine and tied up. He drifted back from her boat, bobbing in their contrary wakes. You okay now? Yeah. Well, storm's coming, I better get. She nodded, then remembered how Ma taught her. Thank ya. All right, then. My name's date case you'll see me again. She didn't respond, so he said, bye now. As he headed out, slow raindrops splattered the lagoon beach, and she said, it's gonna rain bullfrogs, that boil get soaked through. She stooped to the gas tank and stuck in her reed dipstick, cupping her hands around the rim, so rain wouldn't drop in. Maybe she couldn't count coins, but she knew for sure, you can't let water get in gas. It's way low. Pa's gonna know. I got her towed a can to the sing oil four pockets back. She knew the owner, Mr. Johnny Lane, always referred to her family as swamp trash, but dealing with him, the storms, and tides would be worth it, because all she could think of now was getting back into that space of grass and sky and water. Alone, she'd been scared, but that was already humming as excitement. There was something else, too. The calmness of the boy. She'd never known anybody to speak or move so steady. So sure and easy. Just being near him, and not even that close, had eased her tightness. For the first time since Ma and Jody left, she breathed without pain, felt something other than the hurt. She needed this boat and that boy. That same afternoon, holding his bike by the handlebars, Tate Walker strolled through town, nodding at Miss Pansy and the Five and Dime, and passed the Western Auto to the tip of the town wharf. He scanned the sea for his dad's shrimp boat, the cherry pie, and spotted its bright red paint far out, the wide net wings rocking with the swells. As it neared, escorted by its own cloud of gulls, he waved, and his father, a large man with mountain shoulders and thick red hair and a beard, threw his hand in the air. Scupper, as everyone in the village called him, tossed the line to Tate, who tied up, then jumped on board to help the crew unload the catch. Scupper tousled Tate's hair. How's it, son? Thanks for coming by. Tate smiled, nodded. Sure. They and the crew busied about, loading shrimp into crates, toting them to the wharf, calling out to one another about grabbing beers at the dog gone, asking Tate about school. Taller by a hand than the other men, Scupper scooped up three wire crates at a time, carrying them across the plank, going back for more. His fists were bare-sized, knuckles chapped and split. In less than forty minutes the deck was hosed, nets tied, lines secured. He told the crew he'd join them another day for beer, he had to do some tuning up before going home. In the wheelhouse, Scupper put a 78 record of Melissaker just on the player strapped to the counter and turned the volume up. He and Tate went below and squeezed into the engine hold, where Tate handed tools to his dad as he greased parts and tightened bolts by a dim light bulb. All the while the soaring, sweet opera lifted higher into the sky. Scupper's great-great-grandfather, emigrating from Scotland, 
had shipwrecked off the coast of North Carolina in the 1760s and was the only survivor. He swam to shore, landing on the outer banks, found a wife, and fathered 13 children. Many could trace their roots back to that one Mr. Walker, but Scupper and Tate stayed mostly to themselves. Didn't join the Sunday picnic spreads of chicken salad and deviled eggs with their relatives often, not like they had when his mother and sister were still there. Finally, in the graying dusk, Scupper slapped Tate on the shoulders. All done. Let's get home, get supper on. They walked up the wharf, down Main, and out a winding road to their house, a two-story with weathered cedar shake siding, built in the 1800s. The white window trim had been painted fresh, and the lawn running almost to the sea was cut neat. But the azaleas and rose bushes next to the house sulked in weeds. Pulling off yellow boots in the mudroom, Scupper asked, You tired of burgers? Never tired of burgers. Tate stood at the kitchen counter, picking up globs of hamburger meat, forming patties, and placing them on a plate. His mother and sister, Carrie Ann, both wearing baseball caps, grinned at him from a picture hanging next to the window. Carrie Ann loved that Atlanta Crackers cap, had worn it everywhere. He looked away from them, started slicing tomatoes, stirring baked beans. If not for him, they'd be here. His mother basting a chicken, Carrie Ann cutting biscuits. As usual Scupper got the burgers a bit black, but they were juicy inside and thick as a small city phone book. Both hungry, they ate in silence for a while, and then Scupper asked Tate about school. Biology's good, I like it, but we're doing poetry in English class. Can't say I like it much. We each gotta read one out loud. You used to recite some, but I don't remember them. I got the poem for you, son, Scupper said. My favorite, The Cremation of Sam McGee by Robert Service. Used to read it out to y'all. Was your mama's favorite. She laughed every time I read it, never got tired of it. Tate looked down at the mention of his mother, pushed his beans around. Scupper went on. Don't go thinking poetry's just for sissies. There's mushy love poems, for sure, but there's also funny ones, lots about nature, war even. Whole point of it, they make you feel something. His dad had told him many times that the definition of a real man is one who cries without shame, reads poetry with his heart, feels opera in his soul, and does what's necessary to defend a woman. Scupper walked to the sitting room, calling back, I used to know most of it by heart, but not anymore. But here it is, I'll read it to you. He sat back down at the table and began reading. When he got to this segment, and there sat Sam, looking cool and calm, in the heart of the furnace roar, and he wore a smile you could see a mile, and he said, please close that door. It's fine in here, but I greatly fear you'll let in the cold and storm, since I left Plumtree down in Tennessee, it's the first time I've been warm. Scupper and Tate chuckled. Your mom always laughed at that. They smiled, remembering. Just sat there a minute. Then Scupper said he'd wash up while Tate did his homework. In his room, scanning through the poetry book for one to read in class, Tate found a poem by Thomas More, She's Gone to the Lake of the Dismal Swamp, where, all night long, by a firefly lamp, she paddles her white canoe. And her firefly lamp I soon shall see, and her paddle I soon shall hear, long and loving our life shall be, and I'll hide the maid in a cypress tree, when the footstep of death is near. The words made him think of Kia, Jody's little sister. She'd seemed so small and alone in the marsh's big sweep. He imagined his own sister lost out there. His dad was right, poems made you feel something. 